again today. Welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast, this project for you and I to work together through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I'm so glad that you've decided to be with me here today. doesn't matter whether you're here for the first time or you've been here all along. You're most very welcome. I hope you're blessed by our time spent together. If you are here for the first time, then why not click on the subscribe button on your favourite podcast platform and make the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life. By doing that, you'll never miss another single episode. So in a minute, we're going to look at the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 12 and the main accusation that's made against Jesus on that day, and I would say still today. But before we do that, let me just remind you, hang on at the end. That's when I do the updates. That's when I'll tell you about lots of ways you can connect to this ministry, even support it if you wish. Ways you can get additional free resources like the episode notes page and in fact a full transcript of everything I say for you to use in whatever way you find helpful. So with that all said, I'll say bye-bye for now and I'll see you at the end. Bye-bye now. I wonder, has anyone ever stood up in front of you and made a really big attack upon Jesus? Now people attack Jesus and who he is and what he says all the time for all sorts of reasons. Some of them are peripheral and really pretty petty, but sometimes the attack is more profound. Sometimes people will go at it on what they feel is an intellectual level and attack the accuracy of the Bible or the legitimacy of it. A sense they're questioning the legitimacy of what Jesus is supposed to have said or done. But all that's really just peripheral. But sometimes people go to the very heart of the matter and attack the truth which lies at the very heart of the Christian faith. Attack its central claim. They do that today, but interestingly, they also did that 2,000 years ago, and they did it right to Jesus' face. And that's exactly what's going to happen here in this short passage we're looking at today, the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 2. And let me tell you why I think this. You see, Mark tells us that Jesus has come and he's arrived, and he's now out preaching teaching and healing people and locally his population has exploded. People are flocking to see him. Granted it seems to me that many were just interested in seeing his miracles rather than really hearing or rather taking on board his message. Nevertheless they're coming in great numbers to see and to hear him. Now his popularity was not universal and neither will it be permanent because Many will not stick with it. Many will witness or see, have an experience and then just move on for it. And also, we will see that slowly at first, opposition will steadily begin to arise. At first, it begins with a sort of unwelcoming attitude, but it grows slowly into out-and-out out hostility. And at the end, it becomes out-and-out out hatred and a concerted attempt to have him killed. So how is it that people can object to someone at such a profound level? Someone who in reality is simply just coming and speaking about God's love and actually healing people of all things. 
What's the worst thing you could possibly say about such a person? What's the worst accusation you could make against such a person? Well, we shall see that accusation being made today. There are many accusations that can be made against Jesus, and we're going to see all of them over the next couple of episodes. But as we go through Mark's account of the life of Jesus, we shall see that there is in fact at core one main accusation that towers above all the others, so to speak. And I call it the main accusation against Jesus. And Mark explains it and demonstrates it here in the first part of chapter 2. We're only in chapter 2 of the Gospel, but already it's the beginning of the end, so to speak, for Jesus. Because what begins here, this day, will ultimately lead to his crucifixion. So picking up the text, Mark 2, 1 and 2, it opens by telling us a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home, and they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And Jesus comes to the doorway and he preaches to them. So in these opening verses we're told that we know he's been away for a few days, but now he comes back to Capernaum and he's preaching in this situation again. Previously, we looked at a couple of days ago in chapter 1 how he had initially gone to the synagogue and there, remember, he'd miraculously expelled a demon out of a man and that told us how that was the beginning of his fame spreading but then by the time he gets to Peter's house where he healed Peter's mother-in-law, by the way that that process of his fame spreading continued and then he moved on and he sort of took a tour if you like of some of the other villages in the towns in the region but now we find him here returning back to Capernaum and when of course he comes back to Capernaum because what the people witnessed for the first time and no doubt heard when he's been on his travels in the region recently of course the news immediately spreads that he's back in town and the people begin to flock again to see him. And he's in this house and they pack the house first on the inside to the point then where they're gathered all around the outside. And it is at this point, well, it's absolutely clear in Mark's account, but when you compare it to others, it appears that Jesus comes to the doorway of the house and he preaches to them. So in this passage we're looking at today, what we're going to see, what he says, of course, but we're also going to see what he does. But this time we'll also see and hear him do something he's not done before because he's going to forgive a man of his sins. So the story continues in verse 3. Then some men came bringing him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. So pausing for a second and talking about this man who was paralyzed, clearly this was someone who could not physically walk. That's why he's described that way. Now, at that day, in that day and age, in that culture, this means that there was a whole load of things he could not and would not have been able to do for himself. Remember, at that time, there's no wheelchairs, there's no hoists, there's no sort of technology of any way that can help him. This man has literally been carried around on a pallet, and there's nothing he could do for himself. There's nowhere he could go on his own unless he was carried, it would appear, by four people. Clearly, he would have not been in a position to make a living for himself and he would have had to depend on other people to take care of him in every way. So it seems to me that these four people were very likely his friends, maybe even members of his wider family, and in a modern sense, I suppose they were what we would call his carers also. 
And these are the people who probably heard that Jesus was back in town and that he was healing people. And they thought, well, why not our friend here? Here's someone who could really do with the healing. So they put this man on a wooden stretcher, it tells us in the other accounts, and they head towards Peter's house where Jesus is preaching. But as when they get there, they see the place is packed and they can't eat, get in and they probably couldn't even get that near at the front, at the front entrance where Jesus is speaking. But these friends are determined and they also believe that Jesus could heal their friend. So look at what they do next. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the man and the mat he was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. So they somehow get him up onto the roof and they begin to take the roof apart and then they lower him down through the hole, probably using ropes so that, he could, so that they could get him in front of Jesus. Now interesting to me is the fact that it is the faith of these friends that get this man in front of Jesus. And I think that's interesting. Now that doesn't mean the man on the stretcher himself didn't have faith also, but you've got to recognise the fact that the outworking of faith must include these other friends as well. And please note that this means that in this situation it took the faith of more than one person to get this man in front of Jesus. And it says Jesus seeing their faith said, so not seeing his faith, Jesus seeing their faith said to the man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Perhaps all this man and his friends had at this point was faith. He was someone who couldn't even walk down the aisle in the front of a church or synagogue as it was then. He wouldn't have been able to do anything for himself in order to get him saved from this situation. All that he had was his faith. So then as today, salvation in reality is by faith alone in Christ alone. And it tells us that Jesus, when he sees this, it says, When he saw their faith, he said to the man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, the plot then thickens. Look what happens in the next two verses. Now some teachers of the law who were sitting there, thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now where did these teachers of the law suddenly appear from? And why do they immediately get upset? Why do they get upset so quickly? Now I think we can assume when these teachers of the law heard that Jesus was claiming to forgive sins, that didn't sit well with him. Who is this guy, they thought? Who is Jesus? But not in a good way. But to make matters worse from their point of view, they knew that Jesus had already healed a man with leprosy. Do you remember we talked about that a couple of days ago? And when he did that, he told that man specifically to go and show himself to the priests and the scribes. The term scribes refers to those who were the teachers of the law. And it tells the man to offer the appropriate sacrifices. Now the members of the Sanhedrin, who were referred to as scribes, they were the teachers of the law, it's the same thing, but they were also the ones who were given the job of judging any claims of messiahship. If someone was claiming to be messiah, or someone was even suspected of being the messiah, it was these teachers of the law job to go and investigate. So what is really happening here is that this is the same guys who have no doubt heard that Jesus had healed someone with leprosy. 
and they also knew how important, how significant that was, because only God could do that according to their own Mosaic law. So, of course, they quickly rush up to Galilee, probably join the throng of the other peoples, but because of their position of society, when the crowd gathers, they're literally sitting in the front seat. They are and actually there to see who Jesus is, who this person is, and to see what he's doing, and to make a judgment on it. And what is really important to understand here, something that everyone in the room knew on that day, was the fact that only God can forgive sins. And in fact, as an add-on, they knew, because it specifically said way back in 2 Kings chapter 5, in the story of Naaman, it actually says that only God can cleanse someone with leprosy. So there's two layers of, of authentication. There's two potential layers of authentication going on here. So where we see these guys in Mark chapter 1, they're sitting there and Jesus cures, already knowing that Jesus has cured and cleansed a man with leprosy, which from their point of view is very significant. In fact, that was the event that kicks off this whole investigation process, which ends now with these scribes, these teachers of the law, sitting in the front seats, watching everything that Jesus does and listening to everything he says. And what does he do right in front of them? He tells this paralysed man, your sins are forgiven. Now notice at this point, the man doesn't actually get up and walk around. At this point, all Jesus simply says is he states that your sins are forgiven. So you can imagine what's going on in the mind of the teachers and the scribes. They're totally perplexed at this point. But on the inside, it tells us they're thinking, who is this man? Only God can forgive sins. Well, the story continues. It says, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. Wow. Did you notice Jesus, it says, knew what they were thinking? The text tells us they were only thinking this at this stage. They hadn't even verbalized it yet. They hadn't verbalized their unbelief. And yet Jesus says, why are you thinking these things? And he continues, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to actually say, get up, take your mat and walk. Now, the answer to that question is obviously, it's easy, really easy just to say it. Anybody could say it, but doing it is something else. What is not so easy, what is seemingly impossible is to say to a paralyzed man, take up your bed and walk. So Jesus is saying, well, I'm going to do the impossible thing to prove to you that I could do the easy thing. I'm going to show you, to demonstrate that I've done more than just say it, that I've actually done it. And at that point, he says to the paralyzed man, take up your bed, walk. And there we see it. The man does, in fact, take up his bed and walks and walks past them on the way out and on the way home. But think about how Jesus framed his response to their doubt. 
but that you may know. Know what? Know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So again, it's another level of claiming divine authorship because he's claiming to be the Son of Man. He's doubling down, if you like, on his divine messiahship by using this Old, es- this Old Testament title of the Messiah. And Jesus, by using that title and applying it to himself, is absolutely claiming to be the one who, the one who, only one who is able to forgive sins, the Messiah. Notice the big accusation made against Jesus in this passage is actually is the big one of blasphemy. When they said, "Why does this fellow talk like that?" He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? The Jewish leaders knew if Jesus was claiming to be God, the Messiah, the one who could forgive sins, that could be only one of two things. It can be true, or it it was the blackest of lies and nothing else but blasphemy. That's the decision that has to be made here. Note well, the main charge being laid against Jesus is blasphemy because he's claiming to be able to forgive sins. That's the great accusation being made against him. They're literally saying, who do you think you are by claiming to be able to forgive sins? And that's really the same accusation that's made against Christians and Christianity even today. Who do you guys think you are by claiming that Jesus is the only one who can forgive sins and make people right with God? What right do you even have to tell us what sin is? Well, here the story ends with the people being amazed. The general public, it says, are amazed. In fact, it says the people have never seen anything like this and their response is to praise God. But these scribes, these teachers of the law, what do they say? They say, well, the same thing. We've never seen anything like this. But their conclusion is that this is blasphemy. They don't praise God. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy. This passage is pointing out to us that as soon as Jesus began to preach, that aroused their suspicions. But when he forgave people of their sins, it is by their reaction to that event that people are immediately divided. Every single person then has to make a decision one way or another. The first is this. You see, this passage is designed to demonstrate two things. Firstly, the fact that Jesus came to forgive sins and claims to forgive sins. And secondly, that people, that everyone, whether crowd on that day, teachers of the law on that day, or you and me today, we can have one of only two possible reactions to these events. In chapter 1, he had healed a man with leprosy out of compassion. And in chapter 2, he now heals a paralyzed man. But this time he does it as confirmation that he is God and God can forgive sins in order requiring that people respond to that claim. By saying, taking up your bed and walk, he is demonstrating to everyone, including these scribes and teachers of the law, that he has indeed the power on earth to forgive sins. Now the Mosaic law at that time looked upon people when they got things wrong or even when people had terrible sicknesses and illnesses like this in their life and they pretty much just condemned them. But Jesus looks upon people in this situation. He also looks upon on people when they get things wrong and he offers to do something else. He offers to forgive us. The world, and I've chosen my metaphor deliberately, the world pretty much says you've made your bed lie in it. But Jesus, to any of us, 
any of us lying in our bed of pain, spiritually or physically, his call is to take up thy bed and walk. Another observation I would like to make clearly, Jesus here is declaring himself to be the one who can forgive sins. And there's an exact accusation made against him that day. But it is also the seeing, the exact same accusation that his enemies still bring against him and those who represent him today. That's always been the main accusation against Jesus. That's always been the heart of the main charge against him. He's claiming to be God, they said. He's claiming to forgive sin, they say. Who does he think he is? The main charge, the main accusation against Jesus has never changed in these 2,000 years. It's the same today. What right do you have to say that Jesus is Lord? What right do you have to say that only Jesus can forgive sins? Just who do you Christians think you are? You have no right to judge me. Just who do you think this Jesus of yours is? Well, you know, that's a very good question when it's asked in the right way. Who do you think he is? Who did Jesus say he is? Well, we can see right here he declared himself to be God in the flesh and the one who could forgive sins. So let me close by making one final observation. There's something else in this passage I feel I have to comment on. It's this unusual situation where these people, these four friends, these four other people hack through the roof to get their friend in front of Jesus which very simply on a human level tells me if Jesus has the power to heal and restore people then we are called to bring people to him if Jesus really has the power to forgive sin then we surely must be called to get people in front of him they had faith in getting their friend in front of Jesus, but they also had a determination about doing it. And they have to say they had some creativity in the way they approached it. They literally raised the roof in this house to get their friend in front of Jesus. And I believe if we really believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and we really believe that he can forgive sin, then we ought to be doing everything we can to get people in front of him. We need to be doing everything to get everybody we know in front of him. Now on that day it took four people to get this one guy in front of Jesus that day. So my question is, for you today, listening to this, will you also choose to be the bearer of someone else's burden and bring it and them before the Lord? Will you do everything you can to get someone in front of the Lord so that they too can be forgiven. They too can be healed of all the damage that sin has done in their life, whether of their own or of other people. Will you bring everything, will you do everything you can to bring people before Jesus so that they can be forgiven by God himself? Okay, my friends, that's it for today. Thank you for joining me. What a great time we're having together. I know I am anyway working through the Gospel of Mark. Make sure if you're, if you're finding this helpful, then click on the subscribe button and join with us on this journey. 
Can I also ask that if you are appreciating this, then why not share a link to this podcast on social media? Or perhaps even why not visit our Patreon page and help ensure that this teaching is ongoing and remains free across all the main podcast platforms. You can do that by becoming one of my patrons, or indeed you can do that by just following the link onto Amazon and buying one of my books, all of which are used wholly, 100% of the profits is used to support this ministry. And by the way, those people who have made the decision to become a patron, they actually get a free advanced copy of my books and can in fact sign up as reviewers and receive free copies of every book that I release as they release in advance copy in order to have a look at them and review in whatever way they like on Amazon. But anyway, having said that, that's it for today. The main thing is, it's great to have you here. It's great just if you've made the decision to be part of being changed by being brought into the orbit of the Word of God, into the presence of the Word of God, the Bible, every day of your life. You're going to be changed dramatically by the process of doing this. Not because of me, but because of what this amazing book says and the spirit and the power that lies behind it. But that's it for today. I will, I trust, see you back here again tomorrow on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.